Hey, I'm Tom Miffham. I'm about to follow up now what I began last week, which is a series through the book of Romans. Well, it's a letter and uh, sort of through the first chapter last week. So now it's time to dive into chapter two. The amount of content in this seems to me to be about two or three sermons worth. It's substantially weightier and heavier in quantity than the kind of thing I'm usually preaching. But I'm eager to make my way fully and thoroughly through this crucial piece of the New Testament. So I am determined just to go for it. I hope that what I have to say might help open this letter up for you. So the key themes emerging out of chapter two are this. Are you ready? Firstly, we are all relationally linked to the whole of human destiny. Secondly, metanoia moments flow out of and emerge from the kindness of God. Third, crisis is the wide open invitation to embrace reality itself. Fourth, there is an absolute and clean correlation between your act of choice and your destiny. Fifth, you are called into melodic resonance with creation and away from dissonance. And sixth, these things are that we're talking about have to do with the heart. So there's an intense as overview of what's coming, some kind of map just to acclimatize you into it. So let's see how we do. I went to visit my friend this week, Peter, who's something of a mentor, spiritual director. As I walked across the threshold into his place, I felt as though I was entering a space of rejuvenation, a spiritual retreat. And while I was with him for a brief hour or so, through conversations, challenging questions, prayer, encouragement, I had an experience that describes some of what I have to say to you now. It's this experience that somehow is related to metanoia. Metanoia is the Greek word for repentance. Now repentance is a word that has these harsh overtones when you hear it, but to me it's a word of promise and potential. The metanoia or repentance experience is about responding to a situation, responding to an encounter in a fresh way. It has to do with an openness to the unexpected, to the new. Metanoia relates to seeing anew, to acting anew with regard to Jesus, who came preaching this as a fundamental message. It means to turn, to change your path, to change your ways. And during the hour or so I had with Peter, I experienced God doing some rearranging work within me, renewing my mind, challenging some blocks in my thinking, and opening me up to new possibilities. After I left, it was like I saw the city through newly tinted glasses. I felt lighter and different. It was a metanoia moment. I believe that God is calling each person to these metanoia moments. This is the call of Jesus to each one of us. And as disciples, a word which means learner, this means being open at all times to the renewing of our minds in accordance with the will of God and the transforming of our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit, the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. As I preach this chapter of Romans now, which relates to these ideas, I pray that you too would be open to the unexpected from God, that you'd be open to Jesus speaking and moving, commanding, freeing you. I pray that you would know the presence of the Holy Spirit with you and within you, and that you would come 
into a deeper knowledge of the truth of God. Amen. Chapter 2 starts, Therefore you have no excuse. Therefore means the case has been laid already. See chapter 1. The snowball effect flowing out of those who suppress the truth, do you remember, leads eventually to the universal sins list in verses 28 to 31 of chapter 1. And at that transition between chapter 1 and 2, Paul the writer makes a move. It's a surprise move. We've all been watching them, thinking how bad they are. But here's how the transition goes. Therefore, is the word which pivots. It's based on the whole setup Paul has done in chapter 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. Whoever you are, when you judge others. Oh, is that right? It's an unsettling thing to say a little bit, to hear. So why does it say this? What's the reason? For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, he says. Really? What's the reason for this claim? Answer, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. That's Paul's mic drop. His rhetorical move at the beginning of chapter 2 gets us listening. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine, he goes on, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things, and yet you do them yourself, do you imagine that you will escape the judgment of God, verses 2 and 3? Uh, uh, was I even judging in the first place? And am I doing those things myself? I don't think so. What are you going on about, man? I was expecting to escape the judgment of God? I mean, what, what is this? I don't even know if I was worried about the judgment of God. What is the judgment of God? And then verse 4, Do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? See, it's heavy. Uh, do I? Desp I don't think so. Do you not realise that God's kindness is meant to lead you into repentance? Uh, no, I didn't know that. I, but that's, that's something I think I can grasp. God's kindness is meant to lead me to repentance. I actually like the sound of that. God's kindness is meant to lead me towards metanoia. Metanoia, the Greek word translated to repentance. It's that moment, like I said, of turnaround, to change your ways, to change your minds, to turn and walk in a different direction. It's the moment when you come into unexpected conflict and an interruption in your ways or your thoughts or your perspective and the new information, the new knowledge or the new command or the new experience calls upon you to move into a new changed world. When you experience metanoia, and it is experience, but it's also more than experience, it is an experience that you respond positively and proactively to. So there's a challenge of confrontation from the outside that comes to you, but there's also the response flowing out of your will, your active choice, your acceptance of the challenge, your embracing the invitation, metanoia. Okay, so God's kindness is meant to lead me towards metanoia. That's actually beautiful. I love that. And so right there we arrive at this moment of truth and beauty in the midst of all these questions that he's throwing at us fast. Transformation by the love of God comes as a result of God's kindness. God's kindness toward us is the beginning of the connection and the relationship and the hoped for end goal of a kindness infused metanoia, a 
kindness-infused metanoia. This conversion through kindness, a kindness like no other. This overflow of divine kindness, like nothing you've ever known or experienced before. Farther than the east is from the west is the breadth of God's loving kindness towards you. For God had such great kindness towards the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. The boundless, abundant kindness of God, the wild abundance of salvation power overflowing through the immeasurable kindness of God. So good. But it's not over yet. Verse 5. By your heart and impenitent hearts, you are stirring up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Whoa! Ouch! What's going on? And that was a swift turnaround. Why are you coming at us like this, man? Paul, the Apostle Paul, who are you? Uh, but this is all crucial to the argument because do you know what's arrived in the picture? The hard heart. The hard heart has made an appearance. Now we are really getting somewhere. The hard heart is a crucial part of it. It's a big point. We are discussing metanoia and to understand metanoia, the turnaround moment, we cannot go any further without understanding something about the heart. And the heart Paul is teaching us about here is not only a hard, callous, stubborn heart, which is related to our thoughts, our feelings, our soul, the fullness of your being. It's not only a hard heart, but an impenitent one. Impenitent, unrepentant. A metanoietos. Not a metanoia, a metanoietos. It's not the turnaround, it's the opposite of the turnaround. This is the radical encounter with the kindness of God in which you do not take up the challenge. You do not turn to the new path. You do not receive the promise and the potential with gratitude and a sense of adventure and life. It's not metanoia. You resist and cast off the demands for change that be, are being held up to you. A metanoietos. And this, in fact, these two terms are linked. A hard and impenitent heart. It's not either or. Hardness of heart and unrepentance are being put together. By your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. Storing it up? It's as though you are earning it. So where is this storehouse of wrath, Paul? And who is paying you for it? God is paying you for it. And you will receive your pay on the day of wrath. Oh some kind of event supposedly to come. So put an invitation in your Google calendar and on that day God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And it is by this, by your heart and impenitent heart that you are doing this. The state of heart and will is in no way separate from the storing up of wrath. On that day God's righteous judgment is revealed. The phrase righteous judgment is interesting. The translation comes from a merger of two Greek words. Dakaios is the righteous part, meaning innocent, holy, just, and crisis, crisis with a K. Dakaioklesia. Do you see that? So the judgment, the crisis of God points exactly to metanoia. There's a direct link between the encounter with the kindness of God and the encounter with this crisis judgment of God. 
You are present in each. Judgment itself is neither positive nor negative. Just as crisis in English does not have a moral component, crisis has as much possibility and potential as it does danger and terror. When you come into encounter with the living God, there is before you a choice. There is before you a decision, for or against. When you come into an encounter with the living God, there is before you a pathway. One way to the left, one way to the right. Metanoia or emetanoietos. And in the salvation vision of the Apostle Paul, this relates directly to the outcome of the crisis of God. Verse 6, for he will repay according to each one's deeds. He will repay, give back, deliver, recompense, render, restore, according to what each person does, your work, your action, your labour. Paul has established an absolute correlation between your core choices and responses and decisions that you make in your life and what life does in response. Completely related. Who you are, what you do, to what you get. It's not fate, you're not a pawn in someone else's game. That's what this means. You are a player, an active agent in the world, deployed and called to play the game, to do business, to take a stand, to aim at a target and press go. You're not the victim of your life, you are the heroine or the hero. Paul the Apostle is calling to see in you this truth. God is right before you. The Lord Jesus stands in front of you with a mischievous smile and a glint in his eye, strength in his arms, and he's calling you. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is near. That is the metanoia moment. And the choice is in your hands. So do you dare to take the risk of your life? Come on. What else is there to live for? There's no higher name than the name of Jesus. There's no glory brighter than that of the Almighty God. There is no political power mightier than the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no evil that can hold him down. Death could not hold him and he has risen from the grave and he comes to you now, dangerously alive and wonderfully good. What else have you to live for that competes with this call? This call to resurrection life, to the new birth, to the fulfilment of your truest purpose and the satisfaction of your deepest longings. Come on, this is the moment, the moment that Jesus is calling out to you. Turn around, turn your life and start heading in the direction of Jesus. There is no one else you can follow who can offer you such a wild adventure and such abundant fullness of life. Everything you've ever hoped for lies down this path. Come Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. Now the Psalms are the songbook of the Bible. Raw, powerful, honest, sometimes shocking prayers that touch the full continuum of human emotion and experience. And they relate to those experienced to an active trusting relationship with God. Everything is on the table. The Psalms open with someone, and someone tells us something relevant to understanding, firstly, the whole of the Psalms, the whole of the faith, the whole of the gospel, and a very important part of this passage. There are two people pictured in Psalm 1, those who are righteous, who delight in the law of the Lord, and they are like trees planted by streams of water. 
And there are the wicked, those who sit in the seat of scoffers and follow the path of sin, and they will not stand in the judgment. That's exactly where we are in Romans 2 verse 6. For he will repay according to each one's deeds. And this is how the payment gets divvied up. Verse 7. To those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. And on the other hand, verse 8. While for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. So starting with verse 7 first. Here is a taste of the salvation promise, the salvation hope in a nutshell. Those people who by patiently doing good, patiently. Well, you know what good means, right? Maybe need some definition so we're not making an assumption. The Greek word is agathos, relating to all things. Good, relating to God's goodness. You know, good is like a calibre of things. Like when we say there is a fundamental goodness infused through life at the centre of life of goodness. You understand that that's a powerful vision of the world we live in and a vision of existence itself. That's what the word good conjures up. And that is exactly the Christian and biblical vision. God is fundamentally good. All that is good flows out of the abundant life of God. Goodness itself is like an attribute a characteristic of who God is. So doing good is not just about ticking religious or political boxes. It's not just about doing the supposed right thing. This is an idea that is directly flowing out of and arising out of this notion of the fundamental goodness of God's life and love, out of which all of creation has been formed. So when you do good, you are aligning yourself with the very movement of existence itself. The very fabric of reality starts to be something that you are putting yourself in sync with. This is exactly why the Apostle Paul is unafraid to use such strong language to describe this stuff. Because when you learn to see how things actually are, and when you understand that this world is good and God is good, then you can participate in bringing an alignment in your life and into our world with goodness itself. When you do this, you realise that this is critical. This is a key part of the ingredient. It's a life or death situation. Doing good is about whether we are willing to amplify life over death. If we're willing to resonate with the fundamental frequencies and harmonics of reality. This is not critical and judgy language. I know it's, though I know it's so easy to hear it that way, wrath. And I talked a little bit about trying to put aside your offence in the last sermon on Romans 1. No, this is all invitation all the way through and all the way down. And more on doing good. Doing good is the kind of things in which patience is required. It's a slow burner game that not only requires the time indicated by patience, but also the spiritual disposition. If you orientate yourself to be patiently doing good, in a sense you have your eyes set on a different prize, a different horizon perhaps than your peers, your family, those around you. It's aligning in the present and aiming at a future which is worth living for. So you have your eyes on your prize and the prize sought is glory, honour and immortality. Glory, honour and immortality. And indeed if you seek, you will find. To those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honour and immortality, 
He will give eternal life. These are the people who have their compasses set in the right way. They have the sense about what is worth pursuing. It's not just patiently doing good that is rewarded. It is actually the orientation you have while you are doing it, which makes the difference. They are seeking while patiently doing good. They are on a quest. They are in pursuit of a prize. They are adventurers. They are seeking glory and honour and immortality. And what are these words? What is glory? Doxa is the Greek. It is to be, to have, to possess. Yes, glory, gloriousness, dignity, honour. It's praiseworthy. It's worthy of worship. And time, that's honour, dignity. It speaks of that which is precious. And thirdly, aphasia. It's related to incorruption and unending existence. You know, immortality isn't just the dream of today's tech gods and billionaires. It's not just about the possibilities of the human genome, advances in medical science, the potential of robotics and artificial intelligence to augment and extend your happy human life. No, immortality is the dream of history. It is the longing of humanity. It's right here in this 2,000-year-old document. And this is simply a continuity in a much older line of ancient wisdom, spiritual belief, of practice, of insight. Immortality is no joke. Death is a strange friend who never strays far from this life. And for those who follow the Jewish mystic teacher, miracle worker, rabbi and leader, Jesus of Nazareth, are not afraid of death, for it is just the beginning of a wild journey which has been paved by the true son of resurrection. Jesus, we pray that you would orient our hearts aright so that we may long for and pursue these things which belong to you, glory and honour and immortality. These are yours alone and only you can give them. So in longing for these, Lord, we long for you. And in patiently doing good as a way of seeking after you, we are learning to order our lives according to a different rhythm, a slower steadier rhythm. This is the rhythm of life. This is the Holy Spirit rhythm developed in patient endurance and in faithfulness through spiritual practices, through prayer, through attendance to you, Jesus, through love overflowing and at work in all things. Lead us, our Holy Father. And that is salvation hope. But verse 8 gives us the second half of the crisis or judgment equation. It is in the first instance about those who are self-seeking. And it is about those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth, aletheia. And in, instead of obeying the truth, these self-seeking ones obey wickedness, adikia, which means injustice, unrighteousness, wrongfulness, iniquity. These self-seeking people who do not obey truth instead cast their life in with injustice, with unrighteousness, with wrongfulness, with iniquity. There is an active choice to align with that which is not of truth, which is not of goodness, which has something of a destructive tendency and does not sink into the rhythms of reality, but instead creates a dangerous dissonance. For these people, there will be wrath and fury, orge kaithaimos, in the Greek, fierce anger. Fierce anger or wrath and fury, as it's translated in the 
in RSV Bible as the right response to that which creates dangerous dissonance with reality, to that which champions injustice and which has a tendency towards destructiveness. Oh man, so I've been going hard on chapter two and this is only a third of the way through it. I'm gonna keep going, but I'm gonna up the tempo just a little bit. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, verse 12. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So we're back into this theme of justification. Remember from chapter one, righteousness and being justified have a word relationship to one another. Paul recaps an aspect of his early argument here that Gentiles who do not know the law, and he specifically means the Jewish law of the covenant, point to the presence of this moral law as though it's present throughout creation. They even know they didn't know it. They do it. They fulfill it. This is his move linking between creation and conscience. In verse 15, they show that what the law requires is written on their hearts to which their conscience bears witness. This is in clean line of testimony with the wider biblical narrative, which speaks many times about the visibility, the knowability of God to all people and in all of creation. And his point at bringing it up here is to do with that famous New Testament verse, faith without deeds is dead. Okay, there you go. That was a block of four verses. Moved quickly, you see getting on form. So next up, we're going to tie down another loop that was opened in chapter one. I told you about the characteristically Gentile sins in chapter one from the Jewish point of view. Then we moved into something like a universal list of sins, although the target was still generically targeting those who suppress the truth about God through unrighteousness. And I said, hey, just wait and see. Everyone seems to be getting a rough treatment here, but don't worry. That's what I said last week. Paul is not going to leave the Jews, his own people, the people of God, Jesus' people. He's not going to give them an easy ride on this sin front. So here we go. This is what he says. You can't rely on the law alone, you see. It doesn't work like that. I'm sorry to say. You can't boast of your relation to God just because you've inherited. Actually, the life of faith goes much beyond what you know. It's more than just what the law has brought. And even under the law, well, I'm sorry to say it, but you're not even living up to that. That's what he's saying to the Jews in this part of the passage. He's sort of having an imaginary conversation with a Jewish interlocutor, a feisty discussion, a debate. And Paul is maximizing the exaggeration, really trying to drive his point home. Are you a guide to the blind? Are you a light to those who are in darkness? Are you a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children? Well, be warned and be careful because it is a slippery tightrope to walk on when you are the one who supposedly has the special information or the special connection or the special right. Be wary of Instagram ads that promise you the secret to success. Be careful because the risk of hypocrisy and the snowball effect of sin means it may well be a very fine line between you being a good guide and you being a deceiver. 
And here in the form of questions which do the good work of disturbing and stirring up the status quo, as well as calling up the vast and open history of the Jewish people with their well-documented mistakes, failures and sins. Right here, Paul lays it all out. You who have the law and the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and you think of yourself as a teacher, what about starting at home base and teaching yourself? You could do with paying attention and sin is not far from your door. Do you teach against stealing, yet steal yourself? You forbid adultery, but commit adultery yourself? You hate idols, but procure an idolatrous, sacrilegious lifestyle of your own? You boast in the law, but then dishonor God by breaking the law? And here now is the clincher, verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's maximum rebuke. Paul is coming down hard on the self-righteousness or the potential self-righteousness of his people. He's continuing developing the argument he laid out in chapter one. Those who suppress the truth about God through unrighteousness create a snowball effect of sin. And he pivots at the start of this chapter to say, we are all responsible. And now we're getting close to the end of our work. But we're not quite done. Paul is about to bring it home, but with some new insight on the life of faith. Ready? Circumcision. Yep, so it's a central practice for the Jewish people and it's part of the covenant relationship between Israel and God. So maybe it seems out of the blue when you read it in your Bible, but it's a smooth line of thought from the ground that Paul's already been treading. As it says, verse 25, yes, Circumcision is valuable if you obey the law, but if you break it, circumcision doesn't count. It's not magic. There's something underlying circumcision, which is the deeper truth. And if so, Paul goes on to say, doesn't this work in the other direction? Yes, in fact it does, verse 28 to 29, because a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical, but instead a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and real circumcision is a matter of the heart it is a, it is spiritual not literal a person who receives praise from others not from others but from God it's a matter of the heart it's a spiritual thing okay I'm going to recap everything we've just done we're all relationally linked to the whole of human destiny. Metanoia moments flow out of the kindness of God. Crisis is the wide open invitation to embrace reality itself. There is a clean correlation between your act of choice and what happens to you. And you are called to resonate with creation, called to melodic resonance and away from dissonance. And finally, these things that we are talking about are fundamentally to do with the heart, a spiritual reality. And that is the end of chapter two of Romans. Like, it's absolutely cram-packed. And I know I just buried my nose down and went for it, and you're probably trying to catch a breath. And I couldn't blame you. Like I said at the start, it's like, a good two or three sermons worth of stuff in there, sort of condensed heavily. But that's why I gave you the wee story at the beginning. I visited Peter for my, it felt like a spiritual retreat. 
a brief, brief retreat where I experienced something of this encounter with God, a metanoia moment where I saw anew. And that's what Paul was getting at, underlying all of this stuff. There is this link between who you are, how you live, how you respond to what happens in your life, how you go about activating your choices, what you will into existence. There's a link between your life and this world. And we are all responsible for this world. No one is innocent. No one is undeployed in life. There is that sense of every action, every thought matters. And the heart, how you are, who you are, starts to flow out and impact, starts to make a difference. It's like that ripple effect of a pebble slowly rippling the entire pond. It's that sense of you, little old you, little old me, going about your life, going about my life in this little old world. It matters how you do it, how you live. And there's a sense of invitation all the way through. God is calling out. And when we get past the strange words, the ancient culture, the context that this is written that's so foreign to us, it can be so hard to hear it as it is. And when we get past that sense of, are you having a go at me, man? Into what's the truth that's being pointed to here? And when we start to get at it, that yes, there is a way to live that creates dissonance. There is a way to live that creates distraction. There is a way that in which things start to go wrong. That's right. That is the way it is. And when it stops being about those people that are doing it, that are stuffing it up for the rest of us, when it stops being about them, and it starts being about you and me and what God's doing in your life, what Jesus is inviting you to do in response to the abounding gift of grace that we have in Jesus, then it's like the whole world opens up. Then it becomes, like I said, one big invitation all the way down we get a chance to respond and walk into the openness, to walk into the wide open fields of salvation, to live in this world as though we can make a difference. Because once you realize it starts here and that God's actually doing the work or, or desiring to do the work in you, then you really can make a difference. It, makes, it starts with the smallest choice, the response of, yes, Lord. That's the beginning of it. Yes, Lord, I will, I choose. I'm going to rise 
at your call. I will praise, I will walk alongside, I will support, I will go the extra mile, I will be a person of love, I will receive and respond to this great act of kindness that you have given, that you have poured out, that you are offering to me, your hand extended, your arms extended, running through the village to me. Ah, oh, yes, Lord. Yes, I will. I receive this. I'm going to step forward into this pathway that you are calling me into, that you are inviting me into, that you are going to be walking alongside. I'm in for this adventure. I want to be on this quest. I've been seeking after this, and this is what I've been looking for. And now I see that we're just at the beginning. So Lord, lead on. Lead on. From that point on, who knows what's possible? Who knows what's possible? And it's, it's not something that you'll do when you're older. You'll get some more skills and then you'll be free to make a difference. The politicians will do it. The leaders will do it. The cool, clever people will do it. No, no. Respond to God. Participate with God. Receive the kindness of God. Become a person of prayer, someone who says, okay, Lord. And I'll come alongside you because that's what I'm trying to do. That's the path I'm trying to walk. And these other people will come alongside you because you're not the only one that's compelled by the invitation of Jesus. We're, we're compelled and we're, well, we're not always heading in the exact right direction, but we're doing our best and we keep reorientating. Keep reorientating every week. Keep heading ourselves in the direction. Reacclimatizing ourselves to the Master's voice. This way. Oi, he says, this way. Come and follow me. Let's go. And so you'll find it's not just you either. We're in it together. And you've got a fellowship. You've got a team. You've got a, a new family. You're part of a company. And I'm about out now. I'm about out. But I pray that you've heard something in this of the whisper of God, the voice of Jesus calling out to you, the Holy Spirit stirring within you. I hope that you have. I pray that you have. I pray that as you read Romans, that this has opened some of it up for you in a new way. I pray that you would come into a deeper knowledge of God, not just knowledge, to know God, a knowledge, relationship. I pray that you would have a great day, a great evening, a great week, whenever you are listening to this or watching this. I pray that you would uh, be encouraged that you would receive the strength you need from God to do what you have to do at this point. The sustenance from the Holy Spirit to stick to what you have to do at the moment. And I'm sure that you'll receive everything you need from our God who provides above and beyond what we do need and who is filled with kindness and love. Take care.